us. John chapter 6 is where we're at, so grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. As you turn there, I'm going to tell you a story I read in a book this week about uh, this, uh, this two pastors, and uh, they had just kind of recently graduated seminary and were friends and uh, were getting ready uh, to move away from seminary and go uh, to these respected church, respective churches. And uh, the one guy who was telling the story was headed to Georgia, and uh, he was feeling kind of down and out about it a little bit because he was like, his buddy was moving to California. Uh, to go, you know, do a church there in the middle of, you know, lostness. And he was feeling like, you know, I don't feel like I'm really sacrificing or really trusting God and, you know, moving out there into the wild west of California. I'm just going to Georgia where everyone is a Christian and, and, and everyone believes. And I, can't, I don't feel like I'm really going to do mission work. And, and he was feeling down about that. And, and so when his buddy was moving, he went over there to help him pack up the truck and, and get ready to go. And he gives him this big hug. And he said, man, I'm just so proud of you and thankful that, that you're going out there to California. I'm so jealous of, of you know, just how God's going to use you out there in the middle of this just lost, uh, lost city, Los Angeles. And that's how God's going to use you. And he said, man, no. He said, man, when I go to California, like, and someone comes to Christ, it's just super clear and obvious, and their life has changed, and, and, and that is easy and noticeable. He says, you're going to a place where everyone thinks they're a Christian, and you have to convince them that they're not so that you can get them saved. He says, man, you're going to go to the Bible Belt, and you have a hard job ahead of you. Because everyone thinks they're a Christian because everyone there is because they all go to church and that's what it means to be a Southerner. We do not have a shortage of people in our community, in this church, and in our lives who believe there is a God, who are thankful to God, who could point to things in their life and say, yeah, man, I'm so thankful God protected me in this situation or healed me in this situation. We are not short on people who, who sing passionately, God bless America. We are not short on people who attend church. We're not short on people who believe in God, but we are short of people who are genuine converted followers of Jesus. In the story that we're going to read this morning, we're going to see a lot of people who follow Jesus, but we will quickly see what separates the true discipling followers of Jesus and those who just like him. So let's read John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The disciple, the apostle John, writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the very words of Christ, and he says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he, said, he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
And Jesus said, have the, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when everyone came, his disciples went down to the sea, and they got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. They were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus always knows what people are thinking. He knows what is in our heads. He knows what is in our hearts. And so at every turn in the Bible, we see Jesus pushing back on our thinking, challenging the things that are in our hearts, pushing back and challenging us to expose our feelings and thoughts on something so that he comes and like does that turn, right? Like the gotcha moment. Oh, you thought this, but really it's this. To show that we have a deeper deficiency than we think and a deeper need than we realize. He's always showing us that there is more here than meets the eye. Like Jesus when he went to the temple just a few chapters ago. He went into the temple and what did he tell him? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it. And they laughed. Well, of course, he wasn't talking about actually the physical temple. He was talking about in three days, he would rise from the dead, and he would be the true temple, the place you meet God. When he would talk to Nicodemus, he said, listen, you want to you go to the kingdom of God? How, how do you get there? You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus was like, do I enter back into my mother's womb? Jesus is like, no, you missed the point. You've been born of the flesh, now you can be born of the spirit. At the woman at the well, Jesus looks at this woman who's got a bucket getting ready to get water, and he says, can I get you some water? Can I give you the water which you'll never thirst again? And she's like, dude, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get me some water? He's like, you don't even know what you ask. If you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would have wanted living water. I don't need a bucket because the water I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. And this story that we read this morning is no different. We find a bunch of hungry people. And when I say a bunch of hungry people, I mean, the, the, we know this as the feeding of the 5,000, but they would have counted men. And so this is really more of like fifteen to 30,000 people. All right, This is 5,000 family units. And so there's all of these people, and they're hungry, and Jesus is going to feed them so that he can expose a deeper need. This isn't just charity. This isn't just I need to feed some people. This is I need to show them their true need, their, the 
true depths of what they're missing. And so Philip comes and asks, and Jesus asks Philip a question, and, and we know when Jesus asks a question, he's probably testing you, he's trying, to, he's trying to get at something. And he asks Philip, hey Philip, where can we go to buy bread for all of these people? And Philip is immediately thinking, Jesus, one, we ain't got enough money. Two, ain't no shop in the world got enough bread for all these people. Like, this isn't 21st century uh, where we've got factories just pumping out bread. This is where you got to get up every morning and do whatever you do to make bread. I don't know, ask Bretta. She makes bread. But there's no way that they're going to have enough. And then, so Andrew shows up and he's like, hey man, there's this kid here. He's got five loaves and two fish. But that isn't going to even put a dent in feeding this crowd. And Jesus says, tell everybody sit down. Bless the food and we're going to pass it out. And every single person has their fill. Not a bite, not a little appetizer. They have their fill. And there was 12 baskets left over. See, Jesus shows his disciples and he shows all these people just a sneak peek of his power, a sneak peek of what he's able to do, of what he's able to provide. But we know it's all really a setup to teach us something else. But isn't it amazing? Isn't it interesting that Philip here is like, like we're so much like Philip, who when he encountered a problem, he immediately went to a human solution. How are we going to pay for it? Where are we going to get it? How, how's, how are we going to pull this off? There's not enough money. There's not, enough, uh, there's not a store with enough bread. There's no way we can do this. I mean, think about this, guys. Philip has seen Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. Like he's seen him take water and make it wine. He's seen him heal people without even being near them. He's seen him do all this stuff. You would think and be like, yeah, man, Jesus, just do it. And yet, Again, he doubts and he starts thinking about money and where he's going to get it from. How often do you and I try to solve our problems through human effort instead of trusting and relying on God? How often, like Philip, have you seen God be faithful in your life again and again and again? Answer your prayers again and again and again. And yet, when the next thing happens, you're like, man, I don't know if God's going to do this or not, but I can figure it out. I can will it. I can do the things that I need to make this happen instead of saying, hey, God, will you come be here and help and fix and work? I mean, he's been faithful again and again. Why don't we trust him? We're so like Philip in that way. So what's Jesus doing here? What's this all about? Some people would say, you know, you look at a children's book and, and you'll say, you know, it's all about the, the faith of this boy, the faith of this boy to bring this food. Let's be like the boy. And that's true, but that's not the main point. Some people would look at this text and say, oh, you know, it's about social justice. It's about feeding those who don't have, who are hungry. And while that is something we should do, that's not the main point. It might say, you know, we should care for people's felt needs first and then address spiritual needs. While that may be true, that's not the point. Jesus is setting them up to show them something. He's setting them up to show their true need is so much deeper than the filling of their bellies with bread or the healing of their sick. 
that their real need will take much more work and cost much more for Jesus than simply multiplying this food. You see, what we see is they're following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. You see, Jesus knows what is in the hearts and minds of these people. He knows that their motivations are. He knows their intentions. He knows the desires of their heart. And Jesus knows that the people flocking, these crowds that are coming to him, that are praising him, that are wanting to crown him king, are doing it for the wrong reason. That they're not really there for him. Verse 2 tells us that the reason that they were coming was because of the signs that he was doing amongst the sick. You see, these people like the fact that Jesus would heal their sick. They like the fact that Jesus could do these miracles. And they were there for it. They were here for that. They wanted more of that. And they wanted to crown him king. Like, it's almost foreshadowing that moment, right, when Jesus would ride the donkey into Jerusalem, and what would the crowds shout? Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. They're celebrating and excited about Jesus. Now, you might say to me, Brent, that's a, isn't that a good thing? Like, isn't it a good thing that people want to crown Jesus king? Isn't it a good thing that people are celebrating and coming and wanting to know more about Jesus and follow him? Shouldn't we be excited about that? But what these people really want is for Jesus to go and build an army. They want to crown him king so that they will lead, he will lead an army to take out their Roman oppressors. They want to be near Jesus because they want him to heal their sick. They want him to keep doing stuff like make a bunch of bread for us. You see, they want Jesus to be their king as long as Jesus fits their agenda. They want Jesus to be king as long as he will use and wield his power the way they think it ought to be wielded. They want in on this grassroots revolution. They want political power. They want to be on the side of the guy who's going to take their country back. You see, the problem is they like a lot of the things Jesus is doing, but they are missing who Jesus is. And they don't understand what he's come to do. And see, Jesus knows that all these big crowds of people, he knows that they don't believe in him. Later in chapter 6, he says, you don't believe because they don't actually believe in who he is. They don't want who he actually is. They want to crown him king, but he knows that he is not the kind of king they're looking for. You see, there's so many people who are excited about Jesus. There are so many people in our world today that are excited about Jesus, who love to talk about Jesus. There are people who can talk about how thankful they are they can point and say, you know what, I was in this car wreck and I should have died, but the hand of the Lord protected me and kept me safe. There are people who pray to God and ask for healing. There are people who go on mission trips, who go to church camp, who go to VBS, who serve, who love to come and serve the community through the church. There are people who are excited and passionate and they can talk a good game, but at the end of the day, they have made up a Jesus that suits them and their agenda, and they ignore the real Jesus. 
Like this crowd, how often do we put Jesus in a box? How often do we domesticate Jesus and say, Jesus, you can do these things right here because we're comfortable with those things. And we'll follow you doing those things. You see, we don't naturally submit. We don't want a king. We don't want to come and say, all that I am is yours, command me as you wish. We sing those words, right? Like, isn't it interesting how, how we sing so much better than we actually believe? We sing things like, all I am is yours. I give you all my life. But we don't live that way. No, instead, we, we pick our favorite Bible verse and we make Jesus tolerable. Like we, we, we fixate on that part of Jesus that we're into and that we like and we make Jesus tolerable in the way we like him. And so you look around, I mean, I mean, we've got the prosperity Jesus. The Jesus who says, hey, if you love me, I will make you lots of money and bless you. And particularly if you write a $3,500 check to the ministry at this address, then I will really bless you. And we believe that Jesus is all here to make us happy and give us money and blessings. What a false gospel that is. We believe in the social Jesus. The Jesus that says, you know, we don't really need a bloody cross. Let's not, that's, that's gross. Let's not talk about that. The kids, you know, it's weird for the kids to think about the bloody cross. Let's not do that. You know, we just need to be here and feed people take care of the homeless and, and take care of the downtrodden, those who are hurt. Let's just do care of, take care of social needs, but let's not really talk about, about the blood and the empty tomb and those difficult things. Let's, let's not do that. And you got genie Jesus, right? Like, Jesus, I ain't got a lot of time for you, but when something happens and I need something, I'm going to rub that Bible and throw up a prayer, and, and I need you to be there when I need you. We got one of my favorites, the sports Jesus. We don't really live our lives for Jesus, but we always pray before the game, and anytime I score a touchdown, and that's how you know they're spiritual, right? That's how you know that they love the Lord, because when they score that touchdown, y'all hang on, I got to point up first. I never know if they're pointing to like a dead relative or to God, I'm never sure. But they don't live their lives as if Jesus was Lord and you never see them because Jesus, I got practice and he understands I got practice and as long as I pray before the game give him a shout out when I make a goal, we're good. But then you have casual Jesus and this is one I think is so prevalent and one that has so affected people that I love and I think is so scary and so damning. This idea that, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I remember I was baptized. You know, I haven't been in a church in a while, I think the last time I was in church was the time that, you know, there was a funeral I went to or the wedding I went to, probably wasn't a wedding because all the weddings are in barns and stuff like that nowadays, but it was a funeral I was at the last time I was in church. But you know what, every time I see one of those Christian posts about, you know, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father, so share this post 10 times, I always share those. And you know, I, I'm a good person, right? Like, I, I care for people. You know, I go out of my way to help other people. 
And you know, I've got a Bible in my living room and I, you know, and, and I believe in God on my Facebook wall page. You go to a bow and it says religious beliefs, Baptist. But, you know, I haven't been to church in a while. And really, you know, it's because, you know, I just, I haven't found one that really fits me. I haven't found one where people really, you know, I fit into or people like me. It's just hard. And, and you know, really, I just, I've, I've got to work on the weekends. You know, just really, I just, I worked on Saturday night. I get sleepy. And, you know, and it's just, it's just hard. And I just haven't found the right one yet. I know I will, but I'm just busy right now. You know, life's just busy. When life slows down, I'll start making time for God. And 50 years later, we're saying the same thing. How flippantly and casually we treat following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it is a terrifying thing. And it breaks my heart. When I look back and I think about my time in youth group and I think about all of the mission trips we went on together and all the, the camps we were at together and how we cried together and prayed together and how we did ministry together and how it was us and Jesus versus the world and we were going to take the world for Christ. And I look now and I see there's like, out of like 50 kids, there's like three or four of them actively in church and the rest are too busy. They, they, they still, it's not that they became atheists. They believe in God. They share, you know, God posts all the time on their Instagrams, on their social medias, but they just haven't, haven't been really following lately. They've just been too busy. Jesus looks out at this crowd of people and he knows their hearts and he knows that they are more concerned with what they want than who he is or why he came. They're more concerned with their agenda and their desires and they don't want to know about what they really need. And so he feeds them this bread to set up and make this point so he can bring it home. Before he does that, an interesting thing happens. They want to crown him king, and Jesus runs up on the mountain to get away from all these people. He's like, y'all can't be crowning me king. Stop it. He goes up on this mountain, and the disciples leave. They get on a boat, and they're headed across the sea. A um, couple-mile journey, you know, seven, eight, nine-mile journey, crossed over to Capernaum. And they get about three or four miles out, and this storm begins to roll in. And they're wondering why Jesus hasn't caught up to him yet. And the storm rolls in, and this wind is blowing, and... The boat is rocking, and you know, this, I mean, this is a boat that was made 2,000 years ago, right? Like, not like a little bitty wooden boat. So that's got to be pretty scary, okay? And so they're on this boat, and the, the storm's coming, and it's walk, knocking them all around. And then they look up out on the water in the middle of this storm, and they see Jesus walking toward them. Just like, hey, guys. And what does the Bible say? It says they were terrified were frightened they were scared not because of the storm but because this guy they have been following that they'd seen do all these miracles was literally walking on the water in the middle of the storm like it was no big deal and their response was terror it's like it finally clicked of who this guy was that this was no man who had done parlor tricks. It was somebody else altogether. You see, when you know the real Jesus, 
When you see Jesus for who he actually is, there is no making Jesus in your likeness. There is no putting Jesus in a box. There is no belittling his lordship or his demand on your life. There is no half-hearted following of Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, C.S. Lewis says this, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. When you are in the presence of God, everything changes and comes into perspective. When you encounter the holy, awesome, sovereign God, you decrease or forget about you or you see how sinful and unworthy you are. And in that moment of fear of the disciples, maybe feeling guilt and shame, what does Jesus do? He says, it is I, do not be afraid. They take him onto the boat Do you know what happens when you see and know and follow the real Jesus? Everything in your life falls into perspective. I ain't worried about the storm anymore because the dude who just walked through it's on the boat with me. When you know the one who not only calms the storms but walks through them, you can face any hardship and struggle. But not just that. When you know him, nothing else in the world matters. Everything comes into perspective. It's Jesus and then everything else. You see, when you see and know the real Jesus, not the domesticated version we make up, but the real powerful sovereign king, it puts your life into perspective. You know these other things in my life that I thought were important? The plans that I have, the values that I have, don't matter. But whatever that dude that just walked on the water through the storm says, I'm going to do what that guy says. Whatever I thought, whatever I thought was important, whatever was valued to me, whatever's on my planner goes out the window. And whatever the dude that just walked on the water through the storm says to me, I'm going to do that thing. See, when you know and see the real Jesus, you do what he says. So it's funny, the text says, and immediately, they're three or four miles out in the water, and immediately they're back at shore. So they make it back, and all the people show back up. and like, Jesus, we missed you. Where you been? And here's what Jesus says to them in the rest of chapter 6. He says, look, in the Old Testament, my father fed you with manna from heaven, bread from heaven. But do you know what happened when your ancestors ate that bread? They still died. They still died. But now my father has sent a new bread to you. A bread that is to give you life. And if you eat it, you will never die, but will have eternal life. So obviously they're like, yeah, we know you just made a bunch of bread for us. So if you can make us some bread, that never, we'll never be hungry again. That'd be great too. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And they're like, um, I don't know about that, Jesus. Seems a little weird. Seems a little weird. I mean, it freaked him out. Like, honestly, right? Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And they're like, is this dude a cannibal? But what's he, what's he doing? What's his point? He tells them, this is why he fed the bread. He set them all up. He tells them, you have been seeking me, but you don't believe in me. You just wanted your fill, your bellies filled. You just wanted your sick people healed You wanted me to serve your interests. And the bread that you just ate, it filled you up and it was good. You had your fill, but you will be hungry again. Just give it a couple hours. But I am the only thing that can sustain you and give you life. 
But the only way that you can have me, the only way that you can have the bread of life is to eat my flesh and drink my blood. The only way to have me is not to crown me king, not to raise an army to take out the Romans. The Romans are not your real problem. Your real problem is your sin, that you are rebelling against God, you are guilty before God, and you will be judged by him. And so instead of a golden crown to lead an army, give me a crown of thorns. For you to have life, my body must be broken. For you to have life, my blood must be spilled. See, feeding, of, feeding all of the thousands of people was easy, but what you really need is not for me to make you bread, which you, not for me to lead an army. What you really need is for me to die. Your real problem is sin, and your real need is for my flesh and blood to be broken and spilled for you. Jesus telling them what they need. I've shown you my power. Like I've shown you I'm someone to listen to. I've done all of these miracles. I care for you. I love you. And now I'm trying to tell you what you really need. You don't just need food. You need me. And I will provide it myself. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to defeat some fake enemy that you think is a problem. I'm here to defeat your real enemy. I'm here to defeat sin and the devil and death itself for you so that you can live forever. And I love you and want to do that for you. And you know, when they heard that, what every single person except the disciples did, they all left. No, Jesus. We're not here for that. No, Jesus. That's not really what we're wanting. We'll see you later. They all left. They walk away. Because they saw who Jesus was. And once they really knew, they wanted no part of it. See, they wanted the Jesus they had in their minds, the one that served their interests, the one that made them feel good, the one that did what they wanted. But the real Jesus wasn't what they were after. And so then these thousands of people leave, and Jesus looks over to the disciples, and he says, do you want to go as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And it's in this moment we see this clear difference from those who are excited about Jesus to those who are true disciples of Jesus. What is the difference? What is the difference between the multitude and the crowds and these 12? For true believers, the response is always, where else would I go? I can go through any storm, you can take everything I own. You can beat me. You can kill me. But don't take Jesus away from me. Where else would I go? The only place I want to be is wherever Jesus is. See, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. What separates the crowd from true followers of Jesus? How do we know the difference between a cultural Christian which is to say not a Christian, but looks like one, versus a real follower of Jesus. How do we know the difference? One way we see in this text, submission. It's not excitement. It's not passion. It's not serving. It's not going to church. It's submission. It's saying, Jesus, you are Lord. You have the words of life. Wherever you're going, I'm going. Whatever you say I'm going to do, I want to be with you. And we never do it perfectly, right? Like we don't do that perfectly like the disciples. We fail at that again and again and again. But the desire of our heart is to know Jesus and to do what he says. 
You want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? To know him truly and do what he says. And he has commanded us. He has commanded us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And we do that by eating a meal of bread and wine as a reminder of his flesh and blood that we're given so that we might have life. And so as we get ready to take this meal, listen to me, we're going to take this, this meal together. This meal will not forgive you. This meal will not satisfy you unless you have first made Jesus your Lord. If you have not come in faith, if you've not put your faith in Christ, listen to me, this meal is not for you. If you are not his, it's not for you. Instead, today, he offers you an invitation to come and eat of him, of the bread of life, and be satisfied and be renewed and be forgiven and be made whole. But if you have put your faith in Christ, this meal that we're about to take is a reminder that you belong to him and that he has you in his arms and that he loves you so much that his body was broken and his blood was spilt so that you may have a life. This meal is a reminder that you could not come to God on your own, but your entry fee was paid in blood. It is a reminder that you are so sinful that Christ had to die, but so loved that he was glad to. It is a reminder that you are loved, forgiven, and have been made a child of God. And so this morning, church, we feast. We feast on the smallest little cracker you can find and the smallest little sip of juice you can find. But it is a feast nonetheless because what it symbolizes is that in Christ, we are filled. So let's feast this morning on Christ and live. We're going to pass out these elements, hold them, wait, and we're going to all take it together at the end. If you don't belong to Christ this morning, I'm going to stand over there. Come taste of him. Taste and see that he's good. Come, let me show you what it means to follow him and how you can do it. It's so simple. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now, and we are indebted to you. And we look at you, God, this morning not as not as a Jesus we've made up in our own image, not as, as, as we've not tried to, to put you in a box or domesticate you, God, but we want to see the Jesus who is Lord of the storm, who walks in the middle of the storm, who calms it, who, who was dead and who was raised from the dead. We want to see the Jesus who is Lord and sovereign and big, and God, we know that means you have demands on our lives. We know that that means we don't get to set the agenda, you set the agenda. And we say, Jesus, wherever you command, whatever you say, I'll do and go. So God, let us do that. And as we take this meal, let us remember that your flesh was broken and that your blood was poured out so that we could eat and feast on you and be filled. And one day, one day we will sit in your kingdom and we will feast anew with you at our side. And we will feast and feast and feast we will be filled. But until that day, God, if there's any in this room who don't know you, who've never tasted you, Lord, give them the strength and the courage to come have an easy conversation with me about how they can do that. And their life will never be the same. God, help us not to be like the crowd who walked away, but help us to be like the few who stayed. We love you in Jesus' name. We pray all those people said.